You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Thomas Lyon and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent and I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Yeah, welcome, you know, and thank you for joining me today on today's podcast focused on this transformation within the NHS. And we're going to share some of your insights from your individual perspective. Um, So let's start off with, let's go around, do introductions. If you could please introduce yourself, the trust you work for and your role within the trust. Ian, I'm going to go to you first, so please start us off. Hello, I'm Ian Bryant. I'm the Associate Director for uh, Barking, Havering and Redbridge University Trust NHS Hospitals. Leonard, would you mind going next for me, please? Yep, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Leonard Warren. I'm the Digital Inclusion Project Lead over at um, CNWL. That's our Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. Um, We are one of, if not the biggest, um, community and mental health trusts in the country. Fantastic. Thank you. And last but not least, Mark. Please introduce yourself. Uh, Mark Kenny, Strategic Transformation Lead and Head of Health Tech for our Digital and Information Directorate. Um, we're a community, um, a mental health, sorry, and learning disability trust. Um, uh, we span two ICSs uh, and we have a range of inpatient and community services. Fantastic, thank you. And uh, no, thank you everyone for your introductions. I uh, appreciate it. And I appreciate that you're all probably familiar with Teams right now, um, especially, you know, given the pandemic and, you know, it's the kind of the go-to uh, platform for the NHS. Uh, but for better flow of the podcast, you know, if you would like to make a point um, while someone's speaking, please raise your hand through the Teams function. Um, if you'd like to start something, you might want to make a point or, and then what we'll do is we'll come to you when possible. It just creates a better flow. Um, you've all sent us through some excellent and questions and um, you know so thank you very much appreciate you but a lot of you sent more than one and um, given you know they've got an hour what i'll do is pick three to go through and um, should we have more time i'll start making my way through the other ones which i shared within the email and uh, i do hope that's okay and um, so to start off with i'd like to start with uh, leonard's question so leonard asked what are the biggest barriers to digital inclusion in the nhs leonard would you like to elaborate more on that one before i direct to the rest of the panel yeah, sure. So, I mean, just, you know, the topic digital inclusion or even that, that phrase that's been coined, I mean, a few months, well, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, I really hadn't come across that terminology and now it's it's everywhere I go. We talk a lot about digital inclusion and um, I think, you know, even pre-pandemic, a lot of NHS services were focused on digital first and digitization, um, but the pandemic obviously massively accelerated, you know, how the NHS just became completely digitized and what you know digital inclusion is and what I'm particularly um, interested in in my um, in my line of work is it's looking at it's basically a healthy qualities conversation how do we make sure that you know everyone can access their healthcare services as so many services are going online so that's what we're looking to do and obviously it's it doesn't you know it, it, it's it's got lots of challenges um, to it I know there's lots of different amazing work um, and projects happening across the NHS and you know, charity and uh, voluntary organisations as well. But you know, I'm within this project of running a digital empowerment and inclusion project. You know, we, we've faced some barriers, so it'd be interesting to have this conversation with everyone else. You know, what are the kind of barriers that you might face to um, true digital inclusion and how we can overcome them? 
Brilliant. Thank you, Leonard. Um, Mark, would you like to um, speak around that topic and tell guys, Leonard? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'll, I'll kick off. I mean, I, I, I think what interests me, actually, particularly, uh, uh, Leonard, I think is that is the perspective, I guess, we start from. So so we have a similar kind of, you know, um, as we move to sort of, you know, digital services and digital first being another sort of phrase that's sort of coined, you know, what that kind of reference creates for us. So the question, I guess, for me is, is that is understanding people's needs. If we come at it from a digital perspective, I guess, do we potentially miss something, first of all, in that, in, in that kind of thinking? Now, rather than starting with the basic of what do you need, um, if we assume somehow that we're going to provide a digital service, then of course we look at it from a different frame of reference and think about what is it people need to be able to access those things. And I'm just thinking as you were talking about sort of banks and how banks are taking out know, that model of online services and then closing all of the the, the local sort of um, yeah, banks, you know, within within you know, environments people can walk into. So what happens? Because within within our lend disability services, we we also look at things from an accessibility sort of point of view as well. And actually, for for anybody that that still stands. And I guess with that type of mindset, I kind of I like to start, I guess, when I'm thinking about these type of things from from that point, that what is it that people need? And then as we sort of overlay that with the digital sort of offering, then what does that kind of look like and where the gaps are? We've my experience within our organization. So just to say, I used to be a clinician for many years and kind of worked in various informatics sort of roles over the course of time as well, and R&D and things like that and commercial development. And I think one of the things that I've seen is that you know, we, we've got to be really careful. I think that's that that the conversation, you know, is, is certainly moving on from a tokenistic one. I think we're starting to get really sort of in, in, ingrained into, you know, what do we know and what do we kind of not know and how do we kind of try and sort of address some of those things. And I think COVID, to go back to your point, that it's in some cases probably increased um, the gap in some areas because of that sort of provision and, and the needs that, that, that people may have within that. Where we're at, we, we've, we've got some seed funding just recently. Um, I think it's from NHSX, sorry, apologies, I can't quite remember that. And the idea is to go and do some discovery work to have a look at um, what are the areas that we would like to focus on? What is the need that we can kind of define within that space? And then what are the sort of, you know, the potentially the sort of programs of work that needed to bring that that to bear um certainly on some of the system calls i'm on there are representatives from all sorts of different bodies um articulating the needs of different sort of users carers and and, and groups um but i think within that there's so many elements to consider uh, not least you know tech connectivity people's ability to understand a change of process to access uh, services, how that gets communicated, how that gets adopted, how people inform, you know, and train people to be able to use the tools, both from a staff perspective in having that digital literacy and understanding and skill base, but also then in, to be able to inform users. So I see it as a very, very sort of complex problem um, and one in which I think needs, needs a really good kind of understanding of kind of where we're going to kind of start doing that sort of discovery piece. But I'd be very much interested to hear actually where, where you've got to, both in your role and within your services. No, thank you for that, Mark. It's a really good point. And um, before we direct it to Ian, um, I'd like to hear Leonard's thoughts on what Mark's just discussed. I'm glad, I mean, because I kind of, you know, I'm glad you mentioned carers because again, digital exclusion 
is something faced by you know patients and their carers and that's you know part of the scope of this program is making sure that we're addressing both patients and carers but i'm also really glad you mentioned the staff because you know there's only so much we can do to help our service users um, if our staff themselves don't have the digital literacy skills capabilities to you know deliver the support the digital support for our service users and you know that that for me is one of i'd say easily my top three barriers um, to the um, digital inclusion program that we're running is that we really don't have the, the investment in digital skills training for staff. And if you look at how much money is being spent on, you know, whether it's systems and EPRs and network remediation and apps and QR codes and, you know, the amount of investment in the tech has been massive, but the investment in the staff and skills training you know, that's that's just a, an absolute fraction. I mean, I, I won't name and shame, but I know of a trust with, you know, over 8,000 staff and their digital skills training team is a team of four. So that that ratio just doesn't doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's, it's almost a, a completely separate, um, you know, piece of work to do, but a very relevant piece of work to do to make sure that the staff have got the necessary skills to provide digital support to service users, because that's what digital inclusion and empowerment is all about, is providing you know, signposting, skills, training, um, access, devices and data if possible, but it needs to be provided by your frontline staff at the end of the day. Agreed, yeah. No, it's a very good, it's a very good point. I mean, how can you kind of move forward but you haven't got the right people to train it? I mean, it's just, 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 just really doesn't make sense, does it? Have you got anything else you want to add to that, Matt? Uh, no, I, I fully agree. And I, I think it's a real, challenge. I mean, we, we talk a lot about digital literacy and we're sort of working through a range of different sort of things at the moment to look at how we kind of, you know, bring people up to speed. When we bring new people into the services, for example, you know, recruitment wise, you know, what's that kind of minimum level we would, we would hope to have? And if people aren't at that stage, what are we prepared to invest and set up as programs and working with bodies like um, BCS and, and FedEP and, and, and their um, Faculty of Clinical Informatics, things like that to try and sort of help sort of drive the, the principles and standards behind that. But but it is an issue. And I think that there's a number of different elements to this. It's not just a straightforward, who are we not, you know, who have we not included and therefore how do we sort of target that group? It's a, it's a much more involved conversation, I think. Mm. Ian, I appreciate obviously the conversation back and forth between Lennon and Mark. What, what's your thoughts on the whole situation? So I, I take a slightly different stance and while I'm absolutely supportive and I think people need to know how to use technology and they need to be supported through that process I'm more worried about people losing out because we don't digitize um, people uh, I take a simple thing like a letter well if you're blind what's the good of sending a letter it's exactly the same question that comes up if you send the letter to a patient if you can do it in a digital format, a lot of people that have uh, vision impaired can actually ask it to read the text, the message to themselves. So by sending it digitally, you're actually being more inclusive, not less inclusive. Um, I also think that the digitization agenda, I take an example. This is probably going back about 10 years and we were getting district nurses to use Blackberries to register the, the visits. Um, we had one district nurse 
who point for bank refused until she was shown how to use it. And this is a, a, a click and go type application. Okay, absolutely not. And that's that's fine. So we'll come and train you. So we sent somebody over to train them one on one. And the person said, hang on a minute, I'm just finishing my online order for Tesco's. <laughs> there has to be a desire to learn. Not just I'm not going to use until I'm taught. Um, I, I think it's a balancing act and, and, and I run a training team. I, I see how we really have to help people raise the digital game. But there's also things that individuals have to do. But certainly with communications with patients, the digitization agenda, I think, gives so much more freedom. You're talking about carers. Where there's a letter sent to somebody's house, it's it's hard, particularly if you're a relative who's a trusted relative. They they read the letter and they transcribe to tell tell you over the phone, and it's missing. If you can share your portal with the One London project, it allows you you as 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 the patient to choose who can see your record and who can do, do it on your behalf. And I think these developments are all about the inclusion of people. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm really quite passionate that technology, yes, there's barriers, but I think that we, the benefit far outweighs those barriers. And what we've got to do is look at how we protect those people that can't afford a phone, who don't have access to the internet, who we have to consider all of those people. But that doesn't mean we can't go forwards. Um, for example, I talked about the digital letter. A text goes to the individual, they see it on their phone, they have to put in their first name and date of birth or something like that, whatever the criteria is, and then they can see that there's a letter to that individual. If they don't have a device, what happens? Well, up to two days later, it will be sent in the post. Well, that's allowing the option, if you don't have technology, to still receive the, the notification. It's just a different way. The difference from a trust point of view, we're looking at saving £800,000 by moving to a digital letter. That's a lot of nurse time. That's a lot of doctor time. That's a lot of new beds. These are all progress and what we can't do is wait until everybody's got a device to do these type of things. We just have to make sure that they are thought about and looked after. Patient participation in, in project boards very much encourage the the viewpoint from those, those sides. So I think digitizing, digitization aids inclusion, not detracts from it, but that might just be my view. <laughs> Leonard, Mark, yeah, anything you'd like to add to that? I mean, I, I, I agree. I, th I think there's, there's certainly a group of people out there. I mean, I, you know, ostensibly, this is the, yeah, the line of work, particularly I'm sort of passionate about as well. And I think, I think it does definitely drive benefit, as you're saying, and, and particularly, I guess, you're looking at the kind of funding, or the cost saving, and then potentially you know, employing more nurses and things like that. I mean, definitely, without a doubt. And and I think you're right. I think there's a range of individuals for it. It, 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 it definitely supports and, and provides great benefit. I guess the thing that, that strikes me is 
it's that it's that kind of model that says you know what are what are the outcomes we're looking for and and therefore then you know what are the solutions and and, and i think you know certainly the way the way we operate in our directorate we try and sort of shy away from the idea of just implementing technical solutions for the sake of implementing technical solutions and i think it's you know what is the outcomes and the benefits that you're you're describing there i think you know definitely you know there's no doubt about that and you know certainly we found along the way where we're in different projects where people have sort of made assumptions about maybe this client group people with learning disabilities profound learning disabilities for example or or older adults i've seen both adaptive technology with the right level of, of, of input and things like that so there's definitely there's definitely benefits you know to be had there so um yeah so i know but i agree with you with the sort of you know having the sort of switch of frame of reference on it leonard anything like to add no i i 100 agree as well i mean um you know kind of digitization is massively helpful saves time saves money in increases some um, convenience so i'd never kind of advocate for slowing down that digitization i think the, the way I'd, I'd consider this is, you know, we have like, you know, there's digital inclusion and there's digital transformation. And in that kind of perfect holy grail at the top of the pyramid, you'd have inclusive digital transformation where, you know, so you mentioned, for example, Ian, co-production with service users. We go and say, right, from now on, all of your therapy sessions are going to be online. Someone might say, well, I, I don't have a, a laptop and an internet or data on my phone, et cetera, et cetera. So we turn around and say, okay, how can we make sure that you have access to that as well? Um, because it's, you know, who 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 wouldn't take advantage of that rather than having to take half a day off work and then get on the bus and go to the hospital or, you know, drive and drive around looking for parking and pay for parking and sit in a waiting room, find out that you're in the wrong wing, go to a different reception, and then to have a 15, 30 minute verbal consultation, which could have been done over video, um, you know, I think absolutely, you know, digital tools and, you know, digital access to healthcare is, is massively beneficial, um, but just kind of making sure that nobody gets left behind. That's the, that's the, the mantra, so to speak, of the digital um, inclusion and empowerment project. So we do have, you know, we do have data devices, digital volunteers providing training. Um, we're doing some signposting to other, you know, council or other NHS or other charity organizations that provide tools and training for um, digital inclusion. Um, so it, it's absolutely something where it, it needs to grow. It needs to go together and there, there could be multiple factors, you know, whether it's economic factors, age, language, disability, um, but all of those things need to be taken into account to kind of get that perfect inclusive digital transformation program going forward. No, it's a very good point. And I love the point you make about, you know, when you have a hospital appointment, you tend to have to you know, take a half day off work or stuff because you know that you've got to travel there. You know that you're probably not going to get seen on time because you know how busy they are and you've got to schedule because then the day they're dealing with people. And the ability to do things over, for instance, meetings and the meeting that they were doing right now, we're doing it over Teams, saves so much time. I think the point about Ian made um, about the desire to actually want to learn I think if they understand that to get over that hurdle at the start, it will make the life so much easier. And that's just a small little price to pay for a massive, uh, more convenience going forward. Can I just come back on one little point that Leonard uh, mentioned? You, you mentioned that before they might have taken two buses and now they're saying, but we have a, we don't have data. The cost of taking those two buses would have been there and back a good three, four pounds. That buys a lot of data. 
it's also about they wouldn't have had a problem paying for the buses but they but there is an issue increasing your data it's a really interesting one that what people consider to be acceptable and what they consider not to be acceptable and i think that over time is something that that, that will be balanced out people are prepared to pay for transport they're not prepared to pay to have a digital consultation <laughs> in effect yeah i mean that, that that that's true and i mean I, I think another you know slightly you know different point but on the same topic is you know within the the digital transformation work we're doing we do know that there are there is a small population who do prefer face to face and when designing our clinical services i think it's important to make sure we're giving people a choice of how they access and consume their healthcare so if, if digital is not for everyone you know we can't say right the whole nhs is going to be online from now on you know because it people should have that um should be able to make that choice for themselves yeah i think it's definitely about having the choice and not being told what it is that you have to do going forward i think when you give people the choice the much more um kind of susceptible or understanding to that way of thinking sorry ian who's like to go on? yeah you, you, you just raised a really interesting area you mentioned that people want to do face to face what's amazing is how many over covid how many hospitals particularly have gone to video consultations but GPs are still on phone consultations. Uh, and, and to me, bearing, I'm amazed that across the NHS we haven't moved forwards because the idea of a phone consultation for, for a lot of things which you need to talk to for a GP isn't the same as video, which again isn't the same as face to face, but it seems to be telephone or face to face. This video consultation in GPs really hasn't touched. touched such the master plan as yet, which I find interesting. Anyway, there is there is something though I think about the um, kind of iterative design and flexibility. I think in the in the processes that we implement, because I guess thinking about accessibility to all, inclusivity to all, you know, you know, the, the reality I think in the way we kind of model these things is, you know, depending on the voices that are present, you know, we. We script these things out and we create this kind of digital journey, however you want to describe it. And then we look at how we're going to kind of set up the, the, the process. But ultimately, you know, by its very nature, you're going to have a, 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 an individual, a group or whatever sort of come along that may have some different needs that weren't sort of added in there at some point or weren't thought about in a particular way that whatever we do land on, I guess, needs to have that kind of built into it. And I think one of the one of the conversations and it bleeds into a whole load of different things, but, you know, how do you how do you design for the future? And often what I see is, you know, people are focused on a point in time and trying to say, you know, let's let's get an understanding of this piece and let's try and deliver this piece. But actually, how do you create something that's malleable enough that allows you to kind of augment it over time as you find these groups you hadn't even thought about or a set of circumstances that creates a group you hadn't ever considered that suddenly finds themselves in a different kind of position? So, you know, without taking it to the nth degree, I guess, how do we create, you know, how we create those uh, kind of systems is important as well. And how do we stop bad pra practice? I believe there's still over a million faxes a year sent in the NHS. <laughs> it's it's like <laughs> it's been banned yeah. for years, and yeah. it's still a te technology yeah. which is in use. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, we're, we're debating pages at the moment on some of which we found. There's a group of pages on the on the ward which <laughs> which don't have any great signal or anything. So there's lots of head scratching about you know where where that's come about. But no, it's brilliant. No, it was a really good point, Lennon, and it's definitely sparked some topic conversation, uh, which is really really good. Uh, I'd like to move on to uh, Mark Kenny's point, if you don't mind. So Mark Kenny has put forward that move from IT of all to digital as new requires an understanding of the cost of doing digital transformation correctly. And Mark wants to know if this resonates within you know your organi organizations, and if it does, how are you addressing it? Before we take it to the panel, Matt, would you like to elaborate more on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess I guess what I'm referring to is the kind of um, IT cost center type model, um, and I'm interested to know, I guess, where where your your trust services are kind of on that on that journey away from that kind of model where sort of your know, programs projects become a you know how much will it cost? Can I drive the cost down of the digital of the IT kind of and it's often sort of looked at as, as terms of kit, as opposed as opposed to what people's sort of needs are. Now, as an organisation, we've you know we're moving on from that. We've got quite a good digital strategy with you know buying from our execs and our clinical teams, and it aligns with the strategies and so on and so forth. And oh, who's the people involved in kind of shaping that and different sort of user user journeys and mappings and things like that. But what I still see, and and I appreciate, it takes time to try and create this type of culture, but but what does it mean to create the right service that is iterative by design, is able to be sort of flexible to the needs that, that, that people people have? And in order to integrate, adopt, um, make sure you've got the right levels of sort of assurance and governance and so on and so forth, how how are you finding the conversations with your organization in in landing that if that makes sense i hope that's made sense brilliant no thank you mark I see ian on his head so i'd like to go to you first ian if you don't mind okay um so my my first short answer is badly i don't think we do manage it well at all um i think People that go into as doctors and nurses go in to treat patients. They don't go in to log what's going on. They don't go in to, uh, to, to, to help design the working practice. Yet those clinicians which we do manage to uh, get involved into the, the processes add so much to what we actually deliver. Um, in IT, we're not doing the job. We can only estimate uh, what's going to help or hinder um, so it's how we get that engagement and the honest answer is the organization needs to put a lot more time from senior managers all the way down into process flow because it's all about process flow it's all about we all know that you have to do a discharge summary when you send somebody away from your service yet we know that it's not a hundred percent why isn't it a hundred percent because some individuals don't do it and nobody follows up how do we close these type of loops because the it, it's a, it's the insistence of doing things in a repeatable format is what will give us good quality service um, and it's only achieved not through it but through the management structure 
and the, the leaders within the, the organisations. Um, and when one person gets away with not doing something, all the people around them see they get away with it and then they stop doing it. And then suddenly you've got half the people not completing what you expect to be completed. Um, and then you get a uh, IR1 in our organisation, it's called, where the, 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 the GP have said, I've got somebody sent home who hasn't had a discharge notice and he's had some harm done. And then we go all round, oh, why wasn't it done? But we knew it wasn't being done way before that, but people don't intercede. And, 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 and I think that's the challenge is how do we enforce the standard operating procedures that we work in are followed? Um, when you do surgery, you do it the same way every time. They're used to follow instructions. Why can't we get digital to, to, to trigger the same process? So I don't know if that answered your question, but but we are struggling with that too. If you'd like to add, Mark. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, I think that's, I mean, certainly we have an electronic patient record system, I assume, like like the rest of you. And um, yeah, we've over the many years of, of what well, we've had, two really in in the course of time that I've been at the organization and um uh yeah the better over the years at, at using it it's it's um you know the one size fits all model doesn't really work so we're doing our level best at the moment with digital aspirant sort of programs we're sort of doing our level best to try and um, optimize and, and look at it in a different way but we certainly have our challenges in getting people to complete certainly the best of our advice on on what needs completing which it, it impacts data submissions and reports and then how do you have accurate information to advise on services and commissioning and so on and so forth so we have we have that challenge definitely and as a within our ICS is an even greater challenge um yeah I mean I guess I guess one of the things that I, I, I suppose I'm 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 also keen to hear about is is within both of your organizations I guess going back to your point in about leadership how how do the senior leaders up to exec level kind of really do they understand this is what it costs to digital correctly and i particularly focus on things like adoption and integration of the digital systems or technologies that we do do land on um and i'm just going to just share just a, a little bit recently that we've, we've been going through a kind of rollout a program rollout in our inpatient services and it's just suddenly hit a bit of a brick wall where it's actually before we take it to the next step we want it all evaluated which is absolutely fine should have been, you know, should definitely have been done. We had to sort of run that pace during COVID, so there was a reason why there's some delays. Operational challenges have have, have really impacted the ability to do that um, robustly. Um, but there's been quite a bit of pushback from the organisation in the cost of uh, implementing, integrating, and adopting the solution. Um, and we've recently had clinicians, lead clinicians, feedback actually we need this level of support we need this level of cost so they're arguing actually the cost is fair or, or fairer shall we say um but an exec board level and for sign off people are going hang on a minute that's rather expensive isn't it now we've had a number of other organizations come to us and go we put in minimal funding and we've come a cropper and can we go and have a look at how you're doing it um, yet we're still against this brick wall at the moment and literally trying to fight through that to say this is what it costs to do it safely. If you want to cut that down, it'll be at significant risk. Um, so, uh, yeah. 
Leonard, would you want anything like to add to that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's interesting because I think that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that, you know, IT and digital systems are, you know, the primary enabler for clinicians. You know, obviously, you know, they do their job and they do that frontline work, but, you know, without their, with you know, the clinical records and your picture archiving systems or access to the spine or your smart card and like everything, you know, if you have an IT outage, for example, you know, if you've ever been through that, you, you'll you'll still be having, you know, cold sweats and nightmares about it. And I, I really resonate with what Ian said in terms of taking, you know, the organization on board when, you know, you're going through a digital transformation, it needs to be from the top down and from the bottom up. I, I've been in situations where, right, Leonard, here's a budget, here's some new IT stuff we need, go at it. And I've said, well, hang on, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not authorized to make those kind of decisions. I, I work in IT, we are a service provider to our clinicians. So they should say, this is what we're looking for, this is what we need. And then I kind of, you know, design something around what their requirements are, not the other way around. So I think that's, you know, is a very important point is, you know, that it needs to be co-designed with, you know, the people actually using these systems. But I mean, just in terms of the, the cost of doing digital transformation correctly, I mean, I, I've found that, you know, it's, it's, it's an imperfect system because A, you know, we've all had a, a big blank check mid-February when it's, okay, we, our capital surplus needs to be used up, let's get on with it. So it's really hard to plan for proper long-term digital transformation if you've always got these spending squeezes and spending bursts, um, you know, which flow with the financial year. I've always found that to be a really big challenge with getting some continuity behind, you know, our strategic objectives and what we're trying to achieve. Um, but I think over and above the, the issue with the costings, you know, come COVID, there was no expense spared, right? We won a thousand laptops and virtual smart cards and, you know, VPN tokens and, 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 and there was absolutely no expense spared. And, you know, it was actually quite phenomenal. I mean, um, you know, entire CCGs were working from home within a space of a couple of weeks. And usually these kind of pieces of work would have taken 12 months if you're lucky. So, you know, I think that's a, a kind of a good case study to say, well, you know, if someone says, oh, well, this cost is a bit too high, are we really achieving what we want? I think understanding the value that, you know, digital as new, we um, understand the value that it provides to the clinicians and at the end of the day to patient care and patient experience, I, I think it really does sell itself a lot of the times. Oh, thank you for that, Lennon. Um, does anyone, anything else that anyone likes to add to that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, been thinking a little bit more about that particular aspect. Before I went was in the NHS, I was in private sector and I was involved in putting big databases in the Siebel's, the uh, Microsoft Dynamics, the Oracle databases. And we were working on around about 20 to 25,000 pound a head was the cost of implementing that. To me, it's just we, we just use it for different things. When we look at our PaaS, uh, replacement PaaS, if we're working on 20 to 25,000 pound a head, we get a lot more than what we're trying to achieve. But because we tend to work on around about between eight and 10,000 pound a head, we get what we get. Um, and although it's horrendous numbers, and it is horrendous numbers, 20 million pounds, Type, 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 type numbers. 
compared to what private industry is spending, it, it's, it is actually very much on the light end of how you control your business. What you're investing in isn't just a PAS or a EPR, it's about the control of your business. It's your control mechanism. And that's not how these systems are seen. These systems are seen as IT, just get it in so we can get our data out. <laughs> and I think that fundamental difference from one point to another is quite it's scary because you then look at, well, that's one system. We don't just put one system in, we have multiples. As you said, your picture archiving system, you've got your various other technologies which we use. Each of these are a cost. So you add them together and it's a lot. The other irritation that I get is they say, well, in America, but in America, they spend between 10 to 15% of turnover on their technology. In the NHS, we're lucky to make 1% of turnover. <laughs> it's, it's a numbers game. And, and we always feel, and we're very aware, every pound we spend on technology is a pound that's not spent on, on, on frontline care. And, and when you go and say, I need 100,000 pounds, to some to, to, to the exec, that's two, two, two and a half nurses, which you're asking for. Um, but if you don't have a network, if you don't have the infrastructure to support what you're trying to achieve, the organisation will never move out of the constant reactive environment, which we tend to find ourselves in. So I, I do think that funding does need to be looked at in a different way than it currently is. Um, I think the exec, usually the finance director comes from not, not necessarily NHS, but a lot of the rest of the exec is born and bred NHS. And actually bringing in new people with new, new views or, or experience from the private sector, I think actually brings a different insight which helps us understand the cost of doing business is, is, isn't just people. That's a very, very good point, Ian. Anything like you'd like to add before we move on, Mark? Uh, no, not really. I, I, I agree with, with, with the points that are made. I mean, I think, you know, there is a numbers game in there, and I think there is very much a... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's... Yeah, I think there's many aspects to it. I think the... Uh, I think fundamentally, it's a, it, there's a shift in, in, in mindset, I think, you know how, how do you how do you how do you look at it through a different lens how do you to meet the needs of others you have to sort of look at it in a different way um my worry is is that my experience sorry sorry shall i shall i say is that often it comes down to a kind of a pounds and pence game which somehow then with a view to um improving the level of care i think sometimes there is that that balancing act that needs to be done it's you know there's a business element to all of this as well and i think there's a challenge there to try and get the numbers to align while also thinking about what the benefit looks like of of, of doing it in this different way so i think it's a yeah it's an interesting challenge mm. oh brilliant no thank you gentlemen for that i do appreciate it it was a really good uh, conversation and one thing i'd like to say before we move on though um forgive me if you go you guys are on the front all the time in regards to this 
But I'm in a conversation with someone and it kind of brings down to the point of, is it not better to kind of spend that, invest that money now because it'll just save money in the long run? Um, I mean, I think I mean, it might have been you, Ian, or someone was mentioned about, they were, or was it, it might be one of yourselves, so they were implementing, building a new hospital and they were putting cables down and they, instead of paying more for the fiber optic cables, they went for the standardized and then they just kind of completely overlooked it but in in however months time or years time, it's going to get to the yeah. point. It's going to have to be fiber optic anyway. So mm-hmm. wouldn't it be better to spend that money right now, take the hit, and then say, look, think about, you know, think of the, you know, as, as a marathon, not a sprint, if you will. So, so, so yes is the honest answer to say that. <laughs> but anything you put in today, in ten years' time. Will be superseded anyway so you'd have to replace it anyway so <laughs> there's also the argument you put in what you need today knowing full well that it get replaced in a period yeah. of time because it's going to get replaced anyway um yeah. sounds so, like it's, it sounds like it's a vicious cycle to be honest it is, with uh, yeah, it leads nicely into the next question actually and yeah this does lead nice nice next questions so this is the point that ian would like to make so um, ian says with the average life expectancy of 10 to 15 years some systems being 25 years old and um, for systems uh, over 500 different clinical systems what challenges do you and we face when trying to address modern requirements for example online booking online rearranging of appointments digital notifications etc um, Ian, would you like to elaborate more on that before yeah. we direct to the rest of the panel? So certainly in acute, we have a server room of different applications and it's right and appropriate. You can't get one system meets all in, in the acute. You will have a specialist audiology system. You will have a specialist sexual health system. You will have a specialist PAC system. You will have a specialist uh, RIS system. You, you will have these 500 odd systems. Yes, with the likes of Cerner and uh, Epic, that reduces, but you still will end up with 300 plus different systems in an acute. But when you put in the likes of Cerner, what we buy today, we're not going to replace for 15 to 20 years. (laughs) And how do we deal with if you are halfway through that, so the system's seven, eight years old, and there's a new requirement, I, I don't know. Um, bookings is a good, 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 good example that, that, well, everybody's doing bookings online. But you, you, you can book your shopping order, you can book everything else. Why can't you book your appointment? But when you look at the systems which Tesco's put in, they're three years old. They're not 15 years old. We're trying to do things with systems which are just of an age. And it's a natural age that we can't cope with. How do you deal with that? Because that's one of the struggles I've often struggled with. That's quite a tough one, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that, that's a very tough one. And I've worked in accused before, and I know exactly what you mean in terms of, you know, you, you've just got multiple systems and you know i might say oh whack it all in the cloud and you'll say well you know actually these applications aren't cloud compatible because they're so old and they won't integrate with this so there's you know there is no you know quick and easy answer and i think to kind of exacerbate the challenge even more 
there's no kind of standardization in terms of, you know, all right, everybody use this for, you know, for your sexual health and use this for PACs and use that for whatever. So a lot of the time you'll have each department says, I want this system, I want that system. And then some poor person in the integration department is going to have to figure out a way to make them talk to each other. Um, and, you know, you've got this massive integration engine somewhere in the middle. Um, and the, the kind of the lack of standardization and integration and compatibility actually exacerbates the issue even even further. And if one system's 10 years down the line, the other one's being retired, well, you can't retire it until, you know, the 10 year one catches up because the integration is all, all in, in, yeah. embedded in it. So you have to wait for this kind of natural overlap where they all come to a retirement age together before you can, you know, start from scratch to solve your problem. So I would say, come back in 25 years and let's have this conversation when all the systems have retired <laughs> and we can say right we're buying one system everything's integrated it's all cloud compatible and you know whack it on aws or azure and you can do all your online bookings and rearrangings um sorry that's not really a an answer but it's, it's more of a, a kind of a nod to to what that issue is and how hard an issue it is to solve no i love that land i love that land hey mark what are your thoughts yeah, I'm echo a little bit of what uh, Leonard said. I'm not sure I have an answer. We have we have a, a similar problem, but one that's perhaps not not quite as big in some senses. So we have we have a range of different systems, not quite to the number of of, of acutes. Um, we have some legacy systems which you know eventually will will, will drop away over the course of time. I suspect. Um, I think where 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 we're at maybe if I just share sort of I guess that what the future looks like is we've. I mentioned the Digital Aspirin um, Plus program. So we, we're one of three community mental health trusts that are working with NHSX to have a look at, to disrupt the kind of market a little bit. So one is to have a look at how we kind of optimize our, our current use of our EPR. But the other interesting thread to it is kind of a bimodal sort of process we're looking at is how do we create a platform that allows us to um, use the data we get from our EPR but also data from other applications that may better suit our needs and so on and so forth. And then if we can have that kind of data in a separate layer, then obviously how we manifest that and use that with different partners and present it back and you know, so on and so forth. So charity third sector in particular, because there's a lot of that sort of co-working in our, in our areas. So I guess what we're looking at is we're, we're looking to kind of create this kind of different model going forward, which doesn't answer your question at all for how we deal quite with the now, but the reality, I think, is that there's some systems, um, as Leonard was saying about the cloud, the same, there's some systems that, that that we won't really be able to kind of integrate. And how do we slowly kind of move away from that in the in the kind of uh, the new phase? I mean, maybe in the course of time that we're much less reliant on our EPR because the range of different applications we bring in are able to better meet those needs. Um, but it is it is a it is a challenge. And I have no idea how you get away from 500 different systems. And I wish I could, I wish I could tell you something, <laughs> some great pearl of wisdom, but I don't have any for that. So, so it gets even harder when you get things like Internet Explorer being retired. Well, that, that's great. Absolutely supportive of that. It has its challenges. Things are new. But the investment that you spent on some of these systems, which are now 12, 14 years old, those companies aren't going to develop to work on Chrome-based systems, Chromeoid-based uh, systems. Do we go and spend several million pounds more, or do we run in an unsupported virus-rich 
um, risk. Um, it, 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 it's something that's outside our control. Some of these systems were put in before Internet Explorer even existed and then have evolved to support Internet Explorer. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's, I'm very aware it's public money and it's very aware that we're taking, as I said earlier, we're taking away from frontline services every pound which we spend. And here we have a system which works, which we will be have to retire because Microsoft is switching off Internet Explorer. I, I guess the reality, though, is to go back to that point we were saying about you know um, IT as a cost center moving to sort of digital as new, if I could determine mm. like that. I guess that is the conversation, though, isn't it? That says, you know what, these systems are just not supportable anymore. And and what is that sort of transformation element? What is the cost of doing that? What what are the needs now? Because presumably, well, presumably in most circumstances, needs I would assume have changed over the course of time. Um, you know, what are those needs? How do we, you know, better plan and prepare for those? And and then, you know, where is the sort of the funding for the transformation work to make that shift? And and I think one of the things that we're very conscious of, and I'm interested to see what what Leonard thinks as well. We're we're very conscious of the fact that. We don't want to jump from ETR, EPR to EPR to EPR because a that's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly difficult getting the buy-in and the, all the, the fun and games. Yeah, all big, the huge risk. risk. All the fun and games that come with that. We've done it once, twice. wasn't great, you know. So you know we want to look at a different way of doing that. But some of these systems are going to have to go right, and some of it's going to have to be that that investment in time, resource, so on and so forth to make that that possible. But the EPR you're buying today may not support the replacement to edge in 10 years time yeah <laughs> and, 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 and there's no way you can future proof so it can right. um and i think that's that that's the thing that blows my mind is we're expecting these systems to last longer than a car it's yes it's, it's but that's the platform model i think that actually begins for me to to take more shape i think that if you begin if you begin to build something that's relatively kind of you know application agnostic and you can obviously what you bring in you have to be able to get the data from there's no point you know and there's various sort of standards and so on and so forth you can yeah, apply to make sure that happens but but if you can do that then potentially at some point if something's no longer sort of working for you there is the potential obviously to swap that with something else with all the associated conundrum that comes with that but you have that flexibility whereas i think if you if you stay with you know these sort of monolithic systems and it'll be interesting to see what happens with epic and Cerner and so on and so forth and some of the changes within the nhs structure as to how that you know whether we wind up reverting back towards some of that thinking i don't know but you know i think we're really wary of getting tied into anything now going forward so we want to create a different kind of way of, of, of looking at things mm. and it doesn't necessarily mean moving directly away from our current epr either but it means actually how do you kind of you know what what can you get in terms of the data but what other sort of applications can you bring in to support that to allow that flexibility yeah. but surely we should also you know use our our kind of buying power and cloud to actually sit down with these systems developers and say this is what we're looking for this is what it should look like this is how long it should last and you know it, it shouldn't be a case of you walk into a store and you buy whatever's on the shelf you know the, the nhs has got such massive you know buying power and influence you know across the board that we, we really should be having a say and a stake in how our systems are developed and deployed and integrated and how long they last and what we can do with them now and what we expect to be able to do with them in the future but although nhs is very large compared to the global marketplace for example the retirement of flash 
there was a whole load of applications which required Flash, which when that retired, it was old technology. It was flawed technology. It was all the thing, but it did what we needed it to do. Suppliers, rather than redeveloping their applications, just withdrew from marketplace once that became unsupportable. Um, and, 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 and I don't, they didn't want to be, not be in the marketplace. It's the things that they rely on, general technology, Java, Flash, all these type of things. They have a life expectancy and that needn't be the life expectancy of what we've got in our, our, our plans. I think it's an interesting point as well because the buying power that we, we do and don't have, I think it's really interesting because we're not necessarily united. We've got different systems, different applications, different needs, and actually getting everyone to sort of coalesce around that is quite tricky. And my experience actually of certain providers in that space is you can come on mass if you want, but you'll still get what we're ready to give you. Um, and I think, and, and, but, but, but you're right as well. So one of the challenges that we got at the moment in the D, in the digital, uh, the aspirant program is that's one of the things we're trying to do with a couple of other community mental health organisations is to get together and go, look, you know, this is what we really like to leverage out of the system. This we want to get into the contracting and procurement. These are the things we'd like to have. How that percolates through because of the system providers, business models and so on and so forth will be an interesting conversation. And you're right, if we can you know, get together and kind of get some sort of central backing behind that, you know, we might be able to sort of leverage some some things. One of the most think one of the things we mainly want is access to the data. You know, mm -hmm. um, but direct, the fact we're having direct access, direct access, mm. e exactly real time, you know, and, and, and I think that's, you know, if we can start to get somewhere on that, that'll be a really good start. Mm. And it makes a massive difference at a previous trust with Cerner. It took Cerner kicked off the exports uh, uh, files at midnight and we got them about 6.10, 6.20 in the morning just because they were churning. When we went to a direct pull, we ended up having them by about 2.30. Yeah. Um, we, because we know what we want and, and we don't have everything else and coders aren't always the best coders. <laughs> um, no, thank you for that. Thank you for that, Ian. It was a very, it definitely raised a good point, and I like that um, Mark and Leonard were quite stuck on how to actually answer it directly. I mean, that was interesting. That was the first time we've had that. Um, so he definitely raised a interesting question, shall we say? Um, as we sum up, I would like to uh, ask a question that is completely off topic. Just a nice way of winding down, just to give some context behind it. Mike Emery um, put forward this question as kind of a joke, and it's it just stuck from the first one. What was your favourite soft toy or soft like you know child toy as a child? Oh. So I'll kick off with that. I had a little yellow teddy bear, and it went everywhere with me. Have you still got it? I still have it, but it doesn't go everywhere with me. No, it's not going everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Mark, no. Leonard, do you remember? I'll give you a second to think about it, Mark. I've only just remembered. Okay, it's, thank it's you. It's a memory, but I had a, a kind of one meter tall pink panther um, teddy with a very long tail, which I was very, very fond of. And again, 
travelled with me, you know, far and wide. I bet that was interesting for your parents to like, help you carry that around. Oh, yeah, like he had his own seat in the car, seat belt on, you know, he was <laughs> part of the family. Don't use Love the claim, it's actually an extra ticket. <laughs> Mark, have you managed to remember? The only thing I can remember in terms of soft toys um, was a bear that my mum used to have, which had one of those funny mechanisms in it. If you turned it upside down, it would make a kind of weird roaring noise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know where that is. I don't know where it's gone. My son's got one I was given when I was uh, 18 uh, on a on a pub crawl, but probably the less said <laughs> about the things that have happened with that is the better. But it, it's, um, yeah, it's, still, it's still alive. <laughs> it's still alive. And, and we're not alive, but, you know, it's still there. It's still in one piece. <laughs> no, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, it was, a nice, it, it was just a nice way to wind down of quite a serious conversation. Um, and I'd like to just uh, end um, the podcast by saying thank you very much for your time.